event, which is jointly organized by my unit, the Civil Society and Human Security <coughs> and the Middle East Center. And I'm particularly pleased because we're doing a book launch for Zayed al-Ali, who has a really interesting story to tell. He's Iraqi, but brought up for family reasons in the West, but he went back to Iraq after 2003. And he's a lawyer, he works on constitutions, and this book is his story about all this. So it's very readable. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm enjoying it a great deal. So I'm going to let him talk. And then we have Toby Dodge, who many of you will know, has written a lot about Iraq, and he's going to act as a discussant. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, I might just stand here to avoid the glare of the, the projector. I'm still getting it. Anyway, so first of all, thanks very much for being here. Thanks, of course, to Professor Calvin and Professor Dodge for, for, for being here as well. I'd like also to just acknowledge Hannah Tony's help in organizing this event. I, I don't know if he's here. I can't see him, but uh, he's here with us in spirit, I'm sure. The only introductory point I'm going to make before I start is that I'm going to be saying a lot of negative things about Iraq's political class, generally speaking. I won't really be speaking about individuals apart from the Prime Minister. Now, uh, the reason why uh, I mentioned the Prime Minister isn't because I have anything in particular against him, I don't have any particular issues about him. The, the reason why I focus on him is because he's the Prime Minister. So, and he takes the decisions, he's the one who gets the blame for a lot of the problems that are taking place. So please don't take any focus on the Prime Minister or any of the things that he's done as a particular problem that I have with him. I do not have a problem with him personally. I'm sure he's a very, very friendly person, uh, but I do have a problem with his performance in government. Okay? So I'm going to start, first of all, by discussing a little bit about the status quo, what's been happening in Iraq over the past few months, and then I'll get into uh, what I think are the causes, and then we can go on from there. Uh, the first thing that I'll discuss about status quo is some of you may know, some of you may not, uh, that Iraq is not doing very well as a country. We rank close to bottom in a lot of international rankings, including standards of living, corruption, productivity. An Iraqi economist did a study recently, I don't know if it's very reliable, but, uh, the, but it's made a lot of, uh, a lot of headlines uh, in Iraq at least, that the average Iraqi worker produces 17 minutes of effective work per day. I don't know if that's reliable, but it is an indication that we don't get a lot done in Iraq, not because Iraqi workers aren't hardworking, they're extremely hardworking, the problem is that there isn't much to do anymore. Right, there's just not, not any effective work to do anywhere today. Um, and of course, in relation to fundamental rights, you may have seen that there's a plethora of uh, studies and reports coming from within Iraq and outside Iraq in relation to fundamental rights, including particularly uh, detention and the treatment of people in detention. I won't focus on the details of that. If you want to look into it, you can uh, look up all the reports. They're very easy to find online, or I can give them to you if you're interested. The other thing that's been uh, happening at increasingly alarming rates now over the past few months is uh, terrorist attacks are increasing, it's getting worse. There, uh, the, uh, the average uh, death rate per month in Iraq is around triple what it was a year ago, and the rates are getting worse. There's a lot of terrible incidents of extreme violence, gruesome attacks against individuals. I won't go into the details of it, uh, but you can probably imagine what the sorts of things I'm talking about. And the causes of that include, for example, uh, you probably can imagine, the conflict in Syria, which is uh, right next door to Iraq and affects a lot of the border regions with our country. And of course, there's uh, government services, including security services, which are also affected by all the elements that I mentioned before, including corruption. Uh, I discuss all of that uh, as well. One of the things that isn't discussed uh, very prominently uh, outside of Iraq is the state of our environment. Uh, that's something I focus a lot about in the book. I dedicate an entire chapter to it, and I recommend 
that you read it because there isn't that much else that's written in English about our environment. In our environment, it really is collapsing and it's a real disaster. So I really recommend that you read uh, that chapter. Um, I should just say that someone made a remark recently that uh, they've never heard someone recommend individual chapters in a book, right? Uh, of, uh, of their own book. So just to you know, bring clarity to this issue, I recommend that you read the whole book. Right? <laughs> but I will refer to individual chapters uh, through the presentation uh, just uh, in order to, uh, to make your life easier because I know that you're all very busy and may not have the time to read the whole thing. Okay, so how did this happen? How did we get to this current state of affairs? Um, a lot of people like to uh, use as their starting point the invasion in 2003. Some people go back even further to 1991. Some people go even further back than that. My starting point, and this reveals my bias as a jurist, is uh, 2005. Okay? And the reason why I focused on 2005 is because that's the year when we drafted our constitution, and therefore that's the year when we had the opportunity to establish a new state of law, a new democratic state, uh, if the negotiations had taken place properly, then that opportunity existed in 2005. However, it was not seized. Now, the central argument that I make in the book, and I discuss this in chapter 3, uh, is that the manner in which the Constitution was drafted and its content uh, is what's caused our situation today. Okay, so the manner and the content of the Constitution. And I'll go into that uh, in, uh, in, in turn just right now. Okay? Now, what was the problem with the manner in which it was drafted is that Although the process through which the Constitution was drafted was nominally democratic, so there was an election and a parliament was supposedly designated to draft the Constitution, uh, the most salient parts of the Constitution, the most important parts of it, nominally the federal system of government, were not drafted in a democratic fashion. It was drafted behind closed doors in a process that was very, very untransparent and very undemocratic. And it was essentially drafted by the representatives of around about 20% of the population and the representatives of the rest of the population were not involved in the discussions that led to the formation of the constitution sections on uh, federalism. Okay? Um, and the impact is that when the government was formed in 2006, and once again in 2010, many of the ministers that were part of that government would pick up the constitution at times and read its various parts, and would not see their ideas reflected in the text. Not only were they not part of the drafters, but also the ideas that were in the Constitution were drafted by people who had very uh, unorthodox ideas about federalism. You know, I'll, I'll discuss that in a moment. Okay? So the consequence is that for around about, since 2006, many of the provisions in the Constitution were drafted, were violated, either directly or indirectly, either ignored or deliberately violated. Okay? And in fact, you can make three different categories of violation, and I think this is very important. Bear with me. I know that not all of you are jurists, and perhaps maybe very few of you are jurists, so this may bore a lot of you, but I think it's important. Okay? So, the first category of violation was the violations of the most aggressive and controversial parts of the Constitution. So, I referred earlier to the federal system of government. In my view, the federal system of government, as provided for in the Constitution, was deliberately designed to break up the country. Okay? So, when the government refused to apply those provisions, I wasn't upset, I wasn't particularly unhappy. Right? But uh, but I was unhappy with the manner in which it refused to accept those provisions, which often used, uh, involved use of threats and others. Um, the second category of violation was in relation to provisions that were politically sensitive, but that were substantively equivocal. Okay? And the I'll give you a very specific example of that is, for example, the provisions on oil and gas. Right? So you, some of you may know that the provisions on oil and gas, which basically go from Article 110 and further on, um, provide that the, the federal regions in the state 
uh, have are supposed to have a role in the management of oil and gas and natural resources in the country. Okay. Now, I personally do not have an opinion as to whether or not uh, the regions, the federal regions, should have a role in the management, or whether it should be exclusively something that Baghdad should do. I've heard economists argue that it would be better managed internationally, and Baghdad or Iraq would have a more powerful bargaining position if it was solely responsible for managing oil and gas. I personally don't have an opinion, but where I do have an opinion, as a jurist and someone who's aware of how business works internationally, is that investors really hate legal uncertainty. They really, really hate it. Okay? So the fact that the government refuses to apply, or doesn't accept the interpretation that's been given of the Constitution on the sections on oil and gas, has created a huge amount of legal uncertainty, and has really uh, weakened Iraq's bargaining position internationally. Now, you can argue that those two categories, you can argue that the, the, government, the fact that the government refused to apply the federal system of government and refuses to follow, for example, uh, <coughs> interpretations of the sections on oil and gas, that that's debatable and that might be fine and so forth. But the problem is that as soon as you decide not to apply certain sections of the Constitution, then what you're doing is that you're causing collateral damage to the rest of the Constitution. Because then it becomes a matter of opinion as to which uh, provisions you apply and which ones you don't apply. Right? So I've already decided that I will not apply the provisions on federalism, I will not apply or follow the common understanding on oil and gas. What about the rest? Do I have to follow those provisions as well? Right? And that's where it starts getting particularly complicated, because there are lots of provisions in the Constitution which are not controversial, which did not create any particular debate, which didn't cause problems when the Constitution was drafted, which are not controversial internationally. Lots of Constitutions have the same types of arrangements that Iraq has in relation to lots of issues. So you may know, for example, that Iraq has a parliamentary system of government. Okay. And what that means is that parliament is supposed to grant confidence to the government in order for the government to function, and it's supposed to grant confidence to individual ministers. Okay. The prime minister and the people that surround him don't think that that's right. They don't accept it. Okay. They think that they have the right to appoint ministers without having to refer to parliament. Okay. That's been very, very problematic. One of the other things that the, that the government and the people surrounding the prime minister have done is that they violate the principle of non-interference in the judiciary. Okay? So this is a basic tenet of the separation of powers. The government is not supposed to function, it's not supposed to interfere with the way in which the courts function, particularly not the federal court. Right? And yet, on occasion, what will happen is that the prime minister will give a press conference with the, the chief justice of the country in order to, to announce decisions together. Okay? Uh, something else is, normally in a parliamentary system of government, parliament is supposed to exercise oversight over government and control uh, the implementation of policy. That also has been ruled as unacceptable as well. That's not done in Iraq. Something else is the capture of independent institutions. So in our region, in our part of the world, we rely very heavily on independent institutions as being independent from political parties to manage elections, auditing, central bank, and so on and so forth. They're supposed to be independent from political parties. Once again, that's been deemed to be unacceptable. Despite the fact that it's clear in the Constitution, violated very, very clearly on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. And finally, perhaps most importantly, the due process requirements in the Constitution, things relating to, for example, the treatment of detainees in prisons and so on and so forth, the right to uh, an attorney, the right to, uh, if you're going to be arrested, to, uh, to be charged with a crime when you're being arrested, all of those routinely violated on a day-to-day -day basis. <coughs> all over the country, not just in Baghdad, of course. And that's where it starts getting very, very unfortunate. Because then you're basically living in a country where there are no rules anymore. You've decided that you want to apply one category of rules and another, and all of a sudden you don't need to apply anything anymore. 
So then you're left completely at the mercy of your political class. So all political systems in the world, all constitutional systems, depend on their political class and for them to apply the rules, interpret the rules, and to do so in good faith. Right? Depends on the constitution, the constitutional arrangements, and the political class to implement the rules in a good faith manner so that the rules are properly implemented and you have something resembling a democratic system. So in Iraq, in the absence of rules, you're left completely at the mercy of your political class. So then the nature and the identity of the political class becomes very, very important. Right? And uh, this is something I focus in chapter two of my book. I won't go to it in detail here because it would be rude. Uh, but let's just, uh, I'll just summarize by saying that I'm not particularly uh, impressed with the quality of our politicians in Iraq, uh, particularly the, the people that surround the prime minister. Uh, they haven't done a very, very good job. And I attribute that to the manner in which they came to power. You can read the details in chapter two. I won't go into detail here uh, for the reasons that I just, uh, I just uh, made clear. So the question that I think a lot of you are probably wondering is, will these current elections make any difference? So we had elections just a few days ago. Uh, one of the candidates is here in this room. Um, and we're waiting to see what the results will be. So some of you probably know that we don't know the results just yet. We'll find out probably in the next week or so, something like that. We have some estimates of, uh, of preliminary results that are coming out. Uh, some people are estimating that the Prime Minister's State of Law Coalition will probably remain the largest bloc uh, in Parliament. Uh, that, will, I assume, will probably be the case, but he won't have anywhere near enough uh, seats to form a government on his own, which will mean that he's going to have to form a coalition with other uh, parliamentary groups in order to remain Prime Minister, if that were to be the case. So we don't know yet what his bargaining position will be, because we don't know how many seats he's going to have. We're going to have to wait and find out within the next, uh, within the next few days. The estimates as to how many seats he's going to have vary so far from between 69 and 100. And 69 would be a disaster for him. 100 would be a, a major success. Uh, he would need 165 seats to remain Prime Minister. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see, uh, see what's going to happen. So will the elections make any difference if he remains Prime Minister or does not? Now, I've already mentioned that I'm not particularly impressed with the political class as a whole, right? Obviously, there are exceptions. But as a whole, I'm not particularly impressed. And sadly, voters in Iraq were basically given a chance, uh, basically given a choice between a whole set of rotten options. Basically, okay, I'm speaking in general terms, of course, or exceptions, but basically that's what it is. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because the electoral rules that are established, particularly the absence of a political party's law, uh, is designed in a way so that the rules are very, very biased in favor of incumbents. So if you're part of the system, if you're in government, and if you've been in government since 2003, by now you have your roots deeply, deeply dug into the state. Okay. So a party like the Dawa Party, which is the Prime Minister's party. Once again, I'm focusing on the Dawa Party, uh, the Prime Minister, merely because he's Prime Minister. So please don't take that as a personal attack. But the, the, the Dawa Party, at some stage, was a very poor party that was living in exile, didn't have uh, much of a following back in 2002 anymore. It had some following, but not significant in comparison to other parties. By now, today, the Dawa Party, amongst many others, uh, have business enterprises, have television channels, large amounts of staff, you know, they're very significant economic interests today. Right? And when you have media empires, you have money, you have influence in the country, if you're an outsider, you don't have access to government funds, you don't have access to corrupt funds, right? you, don't have, you don't own a television channel, you don't own websites, you don't have thousands of staff. You as an individual or as a group of people in Iraq who don't have access to all these things, what chance could you have, what opportunity do you have to run a national campaign 
to challenge political incumbents have been controlling the state for the past 11 years. As an individual in your province, you may be well-known, and you may be able to get a few votes, maybe a couple of seats, or that type of thing. But a national campaign is essentially impossible when you're competing against these vast business empires today. And that's becoming very problematic because basically the elections consist of a competition between all those parties that have been controlling the country since 2003. Outsiders essentially have no chance of breaking in. So if you want to reform, if you want to change things, the opportunity to do so is very, very limited according to the current rules. But political, the absence of a political party's law in Iraq makes it so that we don't have any idea where the ruling parties keep their money, how they keep their money, where they get it from, and how they spend it. We essentially have no idea. We don't know if they keep it under their mattresses, in their socks, in foreign bank accounts. We have no idea. We don't know if they keep it in gold or in cash. No one has any clue. No one has any clue how much money they have or what any of it is spent. Okay. It's not that in, in lots of countries in the region you have political parties' laws that are not applied. In our case, we just don't have them. Yeah. Okay, so given that uh, this the election and all and all previous elections were basically just a competition between uh, pre-chosen political elites, what are the stakes there for? What is at stake? The possibilities include Maniki staying or leaving, and a majority government or another national unity government which brings together all political parties in the same government. Right. Will any of these possibilities make a difference? Now, the Prime Minister argues that if he were allowed to form a majority government, which means that he wouldn't have all political parties in Parliament as part of his government, but only a majority as part of his government, would that make any difference? He's argued that it would, and he's been arguing that since 2009. Okay. Now, in my view, it would not make any difference, or it would make very little difference, and I'll give you the reasons why in a moment. The first reason why is because uh, although the government, although Maliki's initial, uh, although his, the government that he formed in 2010 was initially a government of national unity, by the end it no longer was. Many of the ministers that were initially part of government had left, were either thrown out, arrested, or threatened with arrest, uh, resigned in protest. Once again, one of the individuals who resigned in protest is here in this room as well. Um, um, and so by the end of it, whenever the, one of those ministers were forced out or arrested or threatened with arrest or resigned, they were invariably replaced by individuals who were close to the prime minister. Not always, but almost always. So by the end, the government, as it currently exists today, looks a lot more like a pro-monarchy government than it was originally. Right? Another reason why um, is because in any event, the government never functioned as a collegial whole. So you may know that when the government was formed in 2010, one of the agreements was that they would draft a new uh, rules of procedure for the government. Uh, that promise wasn't kept. There are no rules of procedure, or at least no new rules of procedure. The current rules that are being applied date from before the war in 2003, and even those rules aren't properly applied. So often what will happen is that large numbers of ministers will boycott a session or will decide not to show up for whatever reason, and yet they'll still find that despite their absence, decisions are taken in their name by those ministers that are there. Okay. So the fact that uh, the, government, the Prime Minister doesn't have the support of the whole government or doesn't have the support of the, the entire parliament hasn't made much of a difference in practice either. Another reason why a majority government wouldn't make much difference is because with Iraq's weak rule of law, the distinction between legislation and regulation is very fuzzy. So normally in our system of government, what you have is parliament passes legislation and government applies legislation by passing regulations. That's normally the rule, the way it works. 
But often what you'll find is that the government will pass regulations within the absence of legislation. There are no laws in place, and yet rules are still, still being applied. And often what you'll find also is that the courts will issue decisions in the absence of legislation as well. I didn't believe it myself until I saw it, until I saw court decisions that actually were passing rules and passing judgment within the absence of a law, which is something that's completely alien and outrageous for a lawyer. And in that type of context, it makes the need for parliamentary support somewhat theoretical if you don't actually need for legislation to be passed in order to pass government regulations. Then finally, a majority government wouldn't actually be able to count on parliamentary support anyway. So even if you did have a majority government, you wouldn't be able to count on parliamentary support for two different reasons. The well, first reason why is because a majority government would never be ideologically consistent in Iraq. Because our political parties, as you probably know, have no ideology or just about no ideology to speak of. Okay. So the fact that you're, you manage to form a majority government will just mean that you have a combination of interests and self-interest to remain in government. But it wouldn't mean that you have the same ideology. So if uh, the government were to pass a particularly controversial rule, uh, then that uh, particularly controversial decision, or were to table a new piece of legislation that were to be sent to the parliament, then what would happen is that parliament would consider it, then immediately parliamentarians would drop their loyalty to government and would start voting along ethno-sectarian lines. There's a lot of precedent for that already, not all parties of course, but most would. There's a lot of precedent for that already in Iraq, and also in other countries that are run along the same way, including amongst others, Lebanon, of course. Okay. Okay. Now, the last thing, I don't know how long I can speak, but probably for two minutes. It's fine. Okay. Okay, but I'm, I'm about to wrap up. Okay. Okay. Now, despite that, I still think that despite the fact that there isn't much difference between the political class and Iraq, I still think, however, that the country would benefit from an end to Maliki's tenure in government. Now, the reason why I say that is because Rightly or wrongly, I'm not trying to, uh, to attribute too much blame to him personally, but rightly or wrongly, he's become a very toxic element in Iraq. Many people find it very difficult to look him in the eyes anymore, very difficult to trust him anymore. Many people, particularly in the various communities, and the secular community, the liberal community, whatever's less left of them, also the Kurdish community, the Sunni community, the Christian community, etc., etc., even members of his own community, find it very, very difficult to deal with him nowadays. Okay? So his mere presence has become very, very problematic. The second reason why I think we would benefit from the end to his tenor is because the trajectory is very clear. We're on a trajectory, and we've been on it now for the past four years. We know his method of dealing. We know his method of working. And we know that violence, threats, intimidation are standard for him and the people who surround him. So if we had a new person in charge in Iraq, it might be the same. But it might also lead to a new dynamic, at least to the possibility of a new dynamic. And that's something that I really think that we desperately need today um, because the current time dynamic is very, very negative and I don't think we'll be able to handle another few years of it. So I'm going to stop there and um, we can talk more about this maybe during the session. Thanks. Excellent. Well, I'll be very quick because I think I stand between you and our speaker and what this night is really about, which is discussing his ideas. I think the first thing to say is to contrast between what I thought was a, a mild madlet man and an incredibly diplomatic talk. And, and I think the book, which is driven by a sense of anger and outrage, and I mean that as the most sincere compliment, there is nothing whatsoever in this book I disagree with. I think it's a finely 
research, detail, attempt to explain the horror that unfolded. Um, well, we'll talk about the date when the original sin was committed in a minute. Um, but I think it, it, it quite rightly seeks to hold those primarily responsible for the hell that Iraq descended into to account. And I think that's an excellent and noble thing, but it does it with great detail and a kind of a forensic accounting, which I suspect only a lawyer can bring. Now, from my point of view, I'm a comparative political scientist uh, and uh, not a jurist, and so I think where my difference of explanatory emphasis would lie would spring from that. And I think I thought it might be useful firstly to think about when the original sin was. Now, I think the book very clearly places it in 2005 with the drafting of, I think, what we can all agree is an absolutely and utterly dreadful constitution. And I, I think the book very neatly details a lot of very smart and non-biased people pointing to the Constitution as it was drafted and as it was voted for, saying, this is not fit for purpose. So I think that's, and indeed, the Middle East Centre itself has published a very good piece of forensic accounting on, on that Constitution as well. Um, well, fascinatingly, those in power today in, in, in Baghdad, and in their bill probably for better reasons, don't point to 2003. At 2005, the original sin, they point to 1968. And I think a lot of people would also point to 1990-91, the imposition of sanctions. So, you know, depending on where you stand, and indeed, you could say with the ruling elite what you want to distract from, you say, oh, it's all the Ba'athists fault. And the Ba'athist part, Ba'ath party has gone from a party that degenerated, degenerated and lost its influence to become the vehicle of uh, lost its ideological drive to become the vehicle of a kleptocratic and incredibly barbarian ruling elite. It's now the spectre that apparently haunts every dark corner in the real Maliki's explanation of what's going on and more broadly and, and possibly more sincerely the traumas inflicted on the country from 1968 uh, to 2003 are used in explanation by the wider ruling elite. I personally wouldn't put 68 or 2005 as the it was a moment of original sin, I'd probably put 2003, the invasion itself. And this is open to debate, and that's because in seeking to explain the growing violence and the, the, the horrific violence that dominated Iraq from maybe 2004 to 2008, uh, the corruption and indeed the absolutely appalling, <coughs> I, I, outside my working hours, I don't want to think about what goes on in Iraq and prison today. I think it's difficult to capture. The, 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 the barbarity that unfolds it. Now, how do we explain all of those things? Now, in reading Vaisal's uh, book, I was thinking about Alex Lexis de Tocqueville, actually, and he's wrestling with France in the aftermath of the, of the French Revolution and arguing how do we build a democratic society in a non-democratic <coughs> state in a non-democratic society. And by non-democratic, I don't mean in any way that Iraqis aren't craving, demanding, mobilizing for democracy, but how do we get rules established, especially the, because, the two, as, as you quite rightly said, the 2005 constitution was a collaboration between a largely exogenous elite, elite that had been brought in by an occupying power. Um, how do we build that? Now, for me, the original sin came uh, firstly with the elite pact, or the exclusive elite pact that was created with the United Nations blessing um, and the formation of the governing council, which explicitly tried to ex uh, exclude sections of society and recognize and herald break down society, mobilize society in specifically sectarian ways. 
I think that's the two elections of 2005, indeed, you can argue that's the Constitution. And the elite pact, as far as I understand reading, Morrow's work was written by five members of that elite pact in the President's House in Baghdad. So the idea that it was in any way transparently or democratically written is a nonsense. Then the clash of institutional capacity, deliberately at the disbanding of the, the, the army, but the clash of uh, civil institutions and state after 2003, uh, I think then catapulted Iraq into first day insurgency, then a civil war. And then what we have going on today, it's a crucial point because I think it's a means and ends argument. Do the ruling elite of Iraq have an ideology? Well, I think they are, the majority are rapaciously driven kleptocratic thieves, but I do think they hide behind an ideology of sectarian representation. So there is, and I think that's the third reason for I would explain. explain. You can imagine a group of people who have come sitting in Baghdad in 2003 interviewing uh, Wifak amongst others, and you really need to come back in and Wifak believe themselves idolized by be closer to whatever the true Iraq is, because they've been out of the country uh, in a much shorter period of time. And they were all greeted by ordinary Iraqis as a bunch of carpetbaggers who hadn't, ironically, that's probably what they became, but who hadn't suffered, uh, and probably obviously couldn't because they'd been slaughtered if they'd been in the country. And so if you're faced with a suspicious and resenting population, but an occupier who wants some thin veneer of democratization moving forward, then you have to seek to divide up the population in terms of maximize your vote. What better way of hiding the issues, the bread and butter rationalist issues of the complete collapse, the failure to deliver electricity to the population, clean running water, a sustainable economy, jobs, uh, and the rampant corruption by bleaching all those ideas out and appealing to the population in terms of security. So I think there's both an instrumental but also an ideational uh, reason for that. So I think those, those were the, the big points I'd have, I think. But I would also add, end on a, on a note of hope as the book does. Uh, the, 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 the type of um, question I was hate at the end is, so what would you do pessimist? And I think you answered that directly with a manifesto for moving Iraq on to a much better place. And we can debate the veracity of that, but I think it's a, it's a wonderful way to end the book. So, I recommend this without uh, without uh, caveat that you should run out and buy it, but I recommend it both as a forensic legal account of what's gone wrong, but also as a justifiably a justifiable work and outrage, holding people to account. And we leave, uh, let, let's finish with the issue of the Prime Minister and whether we bet we survive. Uh, I'm not a betting man, but I suspect I would put a small amount of money on its continuation, simply because there is no and I think he, on, on a very low horizon, has proven himself to be the most competent political operator in the country. And you've already referenced the use of violence, the use of corruption, the transparent manipulation of the judiciary. Um, and I think on that trajectory, I suspect he'll survive. Um, now, whenever I give a lecture like that, people come in the audience and say, being rude about the Prime Minister. It's actually, I'm being complimentary about the Prime Minister. I think in a completely ungoverned space, where violence and corruption are tokens, he's a master of the currency of the Iraqi politics compared to others, and that's why he survived, and that's why he's centralized power in his own office. But that, unlike you, doesn't leave me have much hope for the future at the moment. And I'll leave it there. Thanks. Gosh, leaves me with lots and lots of questions, and I dare say it leaves me with lots and lots of questions. So please feel free to ask a question, whoever would like. Yeah. As that?
wonder if you could sort of contrast the period we're in now and the, and the violence that is going on with uh, the 2006-2007 period. What are the similarities and what, is, what has changed? Mm. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of questions leaping up. Why not answer? Okay. I mean, the, one of the main differences is that in, um, as you probably know, in 2003, the, the army, the police, and so on and so forth were dissolved. Right? And the American military didn't <coughs> decided that it wasn't going to be policing the country in the way that it, that it needed to in order to establish order. So for a long period of time, from essentially 2003 all the way to 2007, 2008, uh, large parts of Iraq were essentially left without any effective police force at all in the country. So when you left your home in Baghdad, you know, in that period of time, you know, in, in just about any neighborhood, um, you would leave your home and you know, encounter any number of militias in the street, but almost never encounter regular state-sanctioned security forces, you know, whether American or Iraqi or otherwise. Right? Um, and you could basically be killed for no reason. You know, just because you had the wrong name or you worked at the wrong place. You know. So I had friends who worked at the Iraqi parliament who were not MPs but um, staff uh, who had to carry their ID badges with them to work because in order to get into the parliament they would have to carry their ID badges. But they were so terrified of being caught with them in the street because if they get caught by any number of militias from one side or the other they could get killed. So they would put them in their socks right, so that the militias wouldn't see them. And then when they would get to the public, they would take it out. Okay. Now, that situation doesn't, that essentially doesn't exist anymore in the large majority of the country. So in Baghdad, you don't leave the streets and then find militias all over the place, you know, running mm -hmm. rampant, running, running a racket, and that type of thing. But sadly, they're still there. They're not out there in broad daylight anymore. Uh, they don't operate right there in front of your eyes. But they're very, very present. So if you drive one day from Kirkuk all the way to Baghdad, you'll find that uh, some of the restaurants are very full and some of them are very empty. Right? The difference is that the empty ones don't pay protection money to the, to the, to the mafias and to the terrorist groups. Okay. Everyone knows who pays and everyone who doesn't pay. So there's a real racket going on. Okay. Um, so the, you know, the groups are still present and they rely on corruption in the armed forces in order to, to survive. So violence is a lot less, but it's only at least a little bit more subtle. It's not, a huge, it's, not, it, it's not extremely more subtle than it used to be. But in 2010, the situation was very different. In 2010, Iraq was almost a relatively safe place. You, know, you could go and have a reasonable expectation of leaving life. You, know? you didn't really have to worry about uh, being killed for no reason. Now, the last time I was in Iraq, I took my son with me. Uh, you know, I regretted it because it turned out to be very dangerous. There was every day there were two or three explosions very close to us, you know? and I felt very responsible as a parent taking him. And I don't know when the next time I'll be able to take him to Iraq, and that wasn't the case in 2010. Yeah, I'm not take two. Uh, first of all, really, uh, I'm very grateful for uh, this book, even I haven't read it until this moment. But I really agree with every word you have said, and I congratulate you for what you have done. However, since I haven't read the book, but just I'm inquiring, have you mentioned the American influence and the Iranian influence uh, which has pushed uh, the situation in Iraq to reach that level, as, as you have mentioned, with the, the corruption, the incompetence, uh, the Australianism. So just read, I wonder, because I haven't read the, the book really, I'm very eager uh, to, to read the book, and really I admire all what you've done, but just I'm raising this question. We'll take a second question. This general point about the political class in I mean, to a 
a great a very great extent to the Christian of the Sultani era. I mean, it could not have been otherwise. But the Iraq society was so uh, recreated. I mean, the Iraqis of the Iraq was lost during the Sultani era. So they could not, uh, the Iraq society could not produce a better this is the effect of totalitarianism everywhere. Can you comment on this? You will remember continuity with the Okay. So in relation to American and Iranian influence, so in the book I do discuss American influence. I mean, there's no way you can't avoid it, right? So particularly in the early period, in, uh, in 2003, in the initial decisions that were made, and then also I discuss a lot of the things that they did in 2005, during the draft of the Constitution. So many people probably don't know this, but um, Iraq's constitution was supposed to be drafted by the parliament or by the people that the parliamentarians delegated it to. But at some point, the American ambassador intervened in the process and said, "That's enough. You know, we're unhappy with the way in which people are drafting." And they they start they, they moved the negotiations to the American embassy, and um, and only allowed certain drafters to come in and excluded others. So I discussed that, for example, in detail. I also discussed the 2010. Uh, government formation process and the influence that the Americans played in that as well. One of the things I don't really discuss is Iranian influence. Now, the reason, there are two reasons why I don't. The first reason why is because I'm not a political scientist and I don't really understand that much about it. American influence is something that's very tangible, you can see it. Right? They're there, right in front of you, they threaten you, they speak to you, right? they tell you you can come in, they tell you you can't come in, it's very, very clear. Okay? Whereas in Iranian influence, is, it's impossible to measure. You know, I, I, you know, I know that it's there, everyone knows that it's there. But we can't really understand exactly what it is, and I'm not a, I'm not a political scientist, so I can't really allow myself to discuss it in too much detail, because I can only speculate, and that's not something that I'm allowed to do as a jurist. Okay, uh, you know there are other people who can do a better job of that than I can, but it's not my specialty, and I don't really know that much about it. And also, the other reason why is because I think this is my this is my impression, and I know a lot of people disagree, that there's a certain amount of exaggeration about Iranian influence. <clears throat> I know that a lot of people uh, would disagree with this, but the reason why I say that is because, for example, in 2010, the elections that took place, it started in 2009, uh, Maliki formed his State of Law Alliance. Okay? The Iranians were not happy with that. They wanted the United Shia Alliance. You know, he refused. He refused. So there's a limit to how much they can actually achieve. You know? If today, for example, Maliki was able to form a new government, and Iran intervened and said, no, we're not satisfied with your performance, we want you to stand down, they wouldn't have that type of authority. They wouldn't be able to to enforce that type of opinion on everyone. So I think there's a limit to it, but I just don't know where the limit is, and I also don't know the mechanisms that they use in order to exert their influence. And I'm sure that there's a lot out there that's already been written about the same issue that, uh, that discusses this type of thing better than I would be able to. So I don't really discuss that much, but I do discuss American influence. In relation to the political class, I, you know, I agree with what it is that you're saying. You know, since you know, I essentially stopped working professionally in Iraq, since around about uh, 2010, end of 2010, and immediately afterwards, uh, the Arab uprising started in Egypt and Tunisia, so on and so forth. And I've been very involved in Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Yemen, you know, working with people there, trying to help with their constitutional processes. So the type of phenomenon that you're discussing is very present in those countries as well. And you can see the impact of that in, in Egypt as well. Nevertheless, even when you're talking about the impact of totalitarianism on an entire political class, there still are distinctions to be drawn between the best elements and the worst elements, even when you're talking about this very negative spectrum. Right? And in our case, I think we've basically latched on to the most negative elements. I think there are better politicians out there in Iraq that could better serve our country, you know, who are there in government for a little while as well. So you probably know, for example, 
I'm just giving this name as, a, as an example. Right? Uh, there are many other examples. Ali Alawi, who was in government for four years in Iraq after the war, and wrote a very good book, um, which is called The Occupation of Iraq. Uh, he was Minister of Trade, of Defense, of Finance. Um, and he left in Iraq because he just couldn't take it anymore. He thought that corruption was just unbearable. Uh, if people like him had been empowered more, then maybe we'd be li li uh, living in a different situation. So in that type of context, this is a question that's come up a lot uh, over the past few months, at least uh, in the discussions that I've been having, is why did not more people like Ayadawi participate in government during those first few years? Right? So the contrast between Iraq from 2003 to 2006, and for example, Germany during the first few years of its occupation, and Japan during the first few years of its occupation, the contrast between those three countries is a very interesting one. Because as Iraqis, many, many people <coughs> refused to participate. Many refused. I refused. I refused to participate in a government that was under occupation. Okay. So the question is, why did we refuse? Were we justified? And had we not refused, had we accepted to participate, would it have made any difference? The answer to that question, I think, we'll probably never know for sure, but I'll be thinking more about it in the next, uh, in the next few months. Okay, there's the gentleman. Me? Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, thank you well for, for this informative uh, talk. Uh, I think I agree with, with, with Toby's uh, words that the sin, to define when the sin started, is not 2005 or 2003. I think we should go back as a bit of characteristic. I lived in Iraq, under the Iraq-Iran war, under the sanctions, under the, the, the war of 1991, and un under the invasion, under when I decided to leave. I think the West started this sin by allowing false justifications, false uh, uh, speaking against, uh, causes to start the war on Iraq. And the, the sad thing that most respectable journals like British uh, newspapers and American newspapers all participate that by publishing things that, that were not true and they were not justified and nobody could prove them afterwards, okay? And they were take, taken from people who were merely looking for uh, a, a residency permit to live in their country or a passport, a national passport. Who is going to, 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 to put these people, the journalists who wrote all these for, uh, uh, untrue facts or untrue in public, in newspapers and, and in, in articles. Who's going to try them? I'm not speaking of Bush or, or, or the new conservative or about Mr. Blair and his, uh, his, his, his jokes and his, his unjustified. But I'm speaking about the people who, 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 who have uh, direct uh, influence on public opinion. Yet the public opinion was not respected because we know that millions of people went out in the street against the war and nobody listened to them. This is the person. Saddam Hussein's regime was full of sins. And we could say that he was tried and executed because of these sins. But who is going to try these people? Who is going to put these people to trial for the sins uh, committed against the Iraqi people? Until now, we are seeing these things happening and happening. And Martin O'Brien justified the killing of 500,000 uh, 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 kid, infant, 
as a, a, an acceptable price for the removal of Saddam. Who's going to, 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 to put this lady uh, uh, to trial? I mean, these things we should look at. Since your book is, is, is written by, by a lawman, I think this is, this is the legal way we should look at it. I've written that in an article, but I think if we expand on this, it will be a very good uh, thing. Thank you very much. Yeah, one could expand Zayed's argument about the law to the international arena and say, can we really talk about an international rule of law when some governments are allowed to violate? But anyway, sorry, I shouldn't interrupt. You're next. Yes. <laughs> it, it seems to me that maybe by trying to fix the situation in Iraq, it's like we're trying to carve on rotten wood. Maybe we should accept that Iraq as a country isn't working, and maybe it can't work. If we look at what happened with Kurdistan, they're doing very nicely, thank you very much. That's the only part of Iraq that does work. The rest is a total mess. And also we're obsessed with the idea of democracy and elections. And we're all very happy we had elections. Isn't that great? Well, what's great about having elections when people are getting massacred every day? And then we talk about Iraq during Saddam's era, which was dreadful. But there's things happening now that didn't happen. And I refer here to the killing of Christians. This never happened. There weren't internally displaced people. The education was better. There are a lot of things now that have gone to hell. But even during Saddam's time, dreadful that they were, were not so bad. So maybe we should just accept that what we have now is not viable. And rather than trying to patch up something that's not working, we need a completely different solution. Yeah. I, just linking up with that, actually, and, and I'm actually um, would very much like to listen to both Zay and uh, Toby about this. <clears throat> Having done some work um, in economics in Iraq recently, um, Zay mentioned dynamics, the new dynamic. Uh, Toby mentioned something very interesting about sustainable economy, and I'm really wondering whether either one of you or both of you think that economic development, at least in the academic discourse, leading to democracy, social change, democracy, etc., etc., is it really an objective? Has it really been an objective in Iraq? And even if you go back to, to the days of the development board in the early, yeah. early 50s, is it, is it possible to think that the ruling classes really knew what the problems of having economic development might be, potentially, for them at least, so that they have continuously ever since really avoided initiating economic development in Iraq, even today. I mean, when you read, and I have contributed actually to one of the national development plans, recent national development plans, even if you read those plans, are they really serious about sustainable economy as a new dynamic to probably achieve towards the yeah, towards indirectly looking at? I'm very much interested in, in listening to you on that. I'm sorry, I'm diverting the angle from jurist political to economic. Okay, so um, I think there were three, uh, three questions. So um, you mentioned the um, 
accountability of others and so on and so forth. Um, I think you know, absolutely that's something that needs to be addressed. And uh, I don't know if you heard, but there's you probably have, but there's a new initiative yeah. that started recently about this. Okay. Uh, and that people are start trying to build up a case you know, to bring some of these individuals to uh, account through some type of mechanism. I don't know if it's feasible yet, but some of us are thinking about it. And we'll see over the next few months and years whether or not there's something that can be done about this. Um, something else is you, uh, you know, so Toby has mentioned, and you mentioned also, uh, you know, when the original sin, and who was responsible for the original sin, and so on and so forth. Now, I agree with, uh, with Toby that as soon as 2003 takes place, then immediately a certain set of dynamics are already in motion, and they're very difficult to control. Um, and I mentioned earlier that the reason why I focus on 2005 is because of my bias as a jurist, obviously. But also, I think there's something that's important, is that you know, having been there at the time, and having followed the drafting of the Constitution very, very closely, I'm very aware of the individual decisions that were made at the time. These very small decisions that had a huge impact on the integrity of the text of the Constitution and the way that it, uh, that it worked or didn't work in the future. And I'm very aware that it didn't have to happen that in the way that it did, even after all the problems that took place in 2003. In 2005, there still was an opportunity to address some of the problems and to come up with a better constitutional framework. It didn't have to be this bad, and it could have been much better. It could have been much better. And in fact, I can give you one very clear example. Is at one point, the chairman of the Constitutional Drafting Committee uh, asked the team that I worked for, so I worked for a team called the Office of Constitutional Support, which was uh, part of the United Nations. Uh, they asked for us to commission a leading international expert to write an analysis of the draft constitution. So this is in September 2005, one month before the referendum. Okay. So we found one of the leading experts, maybe the leading expert in the world. Right? He came to Baghdad, he studied the text, he wrote his analysis, and in the first paragraph he wrote that if you apply this constitution, you will be creating a grave danger to Iraq and to the society. That's what he wrote in his analysis. So the Iraqis took it, they put it straight in the garbage, and they ignored it completely. Okay? So, you know, if they had listened to his advice at the time, they still had some time, they could delay the constitutional referendum, or they could have taken some of his advice into account, but they chose not to. So it's a series of individual decisions that made things worse than it needed to have been. Okay? So that's, that's why I still focus on 2005, despite the fact that, of course, I agree with Toby and I agree with yourself as well. Uh, in relation to carving up and so on and so forth, I understand where you're coming from, but I must say that I completely disagree, okay, for two different reasons. The first reason why is because uh, a large majority of Iraqis, not all, uh, don't want to carve up Iraq. You know, they still believe that they belong to the same community, okay? So their opinion does matter. And the other reason why I disagree is because the alternative that you're proposing is much worse than the status quo. Carving up Iraq would uh, probably lead to unending conflict, okay? I mean, where would you carve it up? Where would the borders be? There's no clear border at all. It would essentially mean unending conflict over who gets which town, who gets which oil field, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And then that would be really, really bloody, and I'm sure that we don't want to be advocating for that type of thing. It would be extremely bloody, and there's no question that it would be. There's absolutely no doubt that it would not be, it would, it would, the, the, the separation would not be similar to what would happen to Scotland if Scotland separated from the United Kingdom. You know? It wouldn't be peaceful, handshake, and we'll see your way, and that's it. It would not be like that at all. It would be armed conflict. Okay, okay. Uh, and then also your, 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 your um, the question about whether Saddam was worse and so on and so forth. Now, I know that uh, a lot of terrible things have happened since Iraq, and my family has also suffered a lot over the past uh, 11 years, uh, but I still think that on balance, 
the situation before was a lot worse. You know, it's, uh, I mean, you have lots of different factors to measure, but uh, you know, it was a really terrible place to be. You know, we, we couldn't even dream of going to Iraq. I mean, you know, uh, maybe we can talk about this later, but uh, the, the, the level of repression was pretty unique. <laughs> anyway, and then finally, in relation to economic development, you know, I don't have much to say about this. You know, but you know, but you know, the only thing that I'll say is that in the first chapter of my book, I give a quick overview of uh, Iraqi history. I was forced to write that for my publisher, but it, but it does reflect uh, it, it does it does reflect my opinion about Iraqi history, right? And my, my opinion of Iraqi history won't come as a surprise to you, which is that our elites have basically not been representing the economic interests of our, of our people at any point. <coughs> not during the monarchy, not during the uh, Republican period, in that sense. I, right? I, I appreciate that. I, I know, I've read reducing unemployment on page 249, so sure. that wasn't bad. Sorry, I don't mind. Just briefly, um, I, you know, I wrote my, uh, my PhD on, on, on the British and uh, the mandate and, and, and what followed. Um, and then I, I went to Baghdad under Saddam, and there was this great affection for the monarchy and, and, and the mandate, because things have got so much worse afterwards. Yeah. And there, there is, a, I think, a tendency among some academics, or I would like to think should know better, and also some uh, exiles are now extremely wealthy after they left it after 58, to romanticize the, 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 the monarchical period. And, and indeed, I'm not in any way saying you're doing this to be economically it was very bad, it just got worse. And I think that the, the point that Iraq's ruling elite have always been ruling for self-preservation and enrichment, or not ruling with a vision for a national move forward. That's been a bit controversial, but it's not this book launch from King Faisal the first onwards. Um, uh, so that, that's the point I would make. <clears throat> to move on, another Iraqi called uh, Rad Al-Qadiri has described the potential outcome for Iraq as Nigeria on steroids. <laughs> And what he means by that, I think, is undoubtedly there is a tidal wave of oil wealth coming crashing over Iraq. And not one single institution that could coherently direct that uh, wealth to either to better the life of the population or even to a development plan. And that gets straight back to the rule of law, transparency, property law, corruption, <coughs> whatever. So I, I completely agree with you there. Um, but that brings the second question of which units would be better to deliver developments in the population on the road. That may speak to my generation, but I, I, I have a firm belief that, in, especially in oil policy, and especially uh, in our interstate, I think the unit of the state uh, and the national state would be better placed in terms of autonomy for the international oil markets, but also in terms of setting development goals. That said, especially with the opening of the pipeline, uh, uh, December, January 2014, across independent Turkish land, in it's a Turkish territory, into Turkey, I think the Kurdish regional government has made a choice. They've been quite rightly too traumatized about being a vassal state of Iraq and they're now going to become a vassal state of Turkey. On basis, not such a bad choice, and I think it would be very difficult to reverse that. And I think that, that's where we're going. I just think about the final point. Constitutions, as a political scientist, I would suggest that constitutions are simply a snapshot of the power relations of the time. That, that constitution was written by the by the KD, it was written in alliance as far as I understand it to KPP, UK, and SK, who were all, for very instrumental reasons, committed to federalism, and it was asymmetrical federalism. So, you, because of the inability of the Iraqi government to deliver uh, meaningful development to Basra, for example, you're going to have a continual demand, as you have had in the Northwest over 2011, for federalism. Hey, give us what the Kurds have got. You know what the Kurdish government says? No thanks. We've got what we want, we don't want what you want. What we want is a strong 
Kurdish state, and we don't want a set of strong regional uh, units around us. So I think there is a deal of, um, we've got ours and we can't have yours, and I do believe, as you're saying, uh, I've always thought, you know, let's create a series of mini civil wars spread across the country, or let's localise corruption. That said, and the incumbency that really doesn't work in provincial elections, turnover of provincial politicians is mind-boggling in terms of percentages, which, if I were looking for a note of hope, would be that the closer the electoral politician to his or her constituency, the more obvious the sins, the more quickly we move the less power, and you could have the less financial power and leverage. Now you could argue that's a, a damning indictment of Baghdad because it hasn't pushed enough money down to its cronies and bastards to buy off its electorate as they've tried in Baghdad. Or you could argue that gives a basis for a local democracy to come back to Baghdad. I don't know the answer, but it just strikes me as an answer. Can I just say this one thing, just very quickly? Okay. So I, I agree with the political science perspective on constitutions that they're just a snapshot of some sort. That's true. But um, but constitutions contain mechanisms that are afterwards used in court, that are used in parliament, and so on and so forth. But afterwards, it's not it's not just the big picture that matters. It's also the detail of what's written, the specific words after it become very very important when implementing the text as well. So the absence of mechanisms or the presence of mechanisms mechanisms and the way in which they're con they're constructed in the constitution actually makes a huge difference. So I'll give you a very clear example. Today in South Africa, you've probably heard that there's an institution called the Public Defender, right, which recently published a report about President Zuma's uh, the construction of his home, the renovation, and how much public money he used, and so on and so forth. That's something that's provided for in the text of the Constitution. Right? The drafters put that in for whatever reason at the time. Now, in Iraq, we have an audit institution that's mentioned in the Constitution. We have the Central Bank, and they're all nominally independent. But in the Constitution, when they provide for an independent audit institution, or an independent judiciary, or an independent sort the word independent is defined in detail. You have around about half a page of detail about what it means to be independent. Our constitution doesn't have any of that. It looks like it was written in the 1950s. That's, that's, a, that's one of the major problems. So even though it, it is a snapshot of PUK, KDP, ISKI, Reliance, and so forth, at the same time, it doesn't have any of the modern mechanisms to protect democratic institutions from encroachment by political parties. And that's one of the regrettable things about it. Okay, so... Hi there. Uh, I haven't looked at the book yet, so forgive me if, if this is addressed, or I think you might have partly answered this question a minute ago. Um, before the war, there was a very large, detailed um, document, the Future of Iraq uh, project, which I believe was under the State Department. Um, I can think of two people who are quite vocal today who were involved in that, if I'm not mistaken, Tom Warwick and Fazal Alistrabadi. Um, in the process of drawing up the Constitution in 2005, do you remember any of that carrying through, any of those suggestions? Because I recall um, Paul Bremer in his book sort of dismissed them as just suggestions, but actually they were quite serious recommendations. Do you remember any of that coming through? Okay, um, and we have a couple more. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about um, the role of religion in all of this. Um, Iraq in the past, at least among the middle class, was far more secular. People were more likely to fall under being Baptist or communist rather than joining, say, a Shia group or a, or a, or a Sunni group. And my reading is that the religiosity have increased in the 90s when Saddam for this first strategic reasons rather than other belief, um, uh, genuine belief. Um, how much is that sort of 
exasperating the situation in Iraq, this increased religiosity. I'm thinking in particular of the uh, personal status law and the proposed one recently, which is a sort of a scandal, wanting to have the ability to have nine year olds married and many of law, which would the very I'm, I'm sure it was for cynical political reasons that you could explain. But the very fact that it was proposed means that there is enough, let's say, things in the air to make somebody think that this is going to be acceptable, uh, which, uh, you know, in the past, it would not have been the case. Of course, it's caused a lot of outrage among a lot of Iraqis. But, yeah, you can talk more about, about the role of religion. Is it toxic, or do you see it as benign, but it's the other factors than that? Okay, so uh, the first thing in relation to the Iraq project, it didn't make it through the discussions. It was never never something that came up. You know? No one ever said, oh, well, we already decided this in London or Washington. You know, that's not something that, that happened at all. But, I, but I, the other thing is that I also I disagree with you that there were, that there were serious conclusions. You know? if, you, if you look at the substance of the text, that they, you know, it's very, very broad. So they, at one point they discussed, okay, well, let's have federalism. Okay. You know, federal systems of government are extremely complex. Just saying that you want a federal system of government doesn't say anything. You know? It's very, very little. You have to decide you know, how many levels of government you're going to have, what the relationship is going to be between the center, who's going to have the authority over what, and so on and so forth. Things like you know, financial rebalancing you know, between regions, etc. None of that was discussed during the future of the None of it at all. You know, the electoral system, that wasn't discussed at all. All this very, very broad brush stuff. In fact, I think, it's something I've described in the book as well, that the way in which that document was drafted, the future of Iraq, and the way it was negotiated, and the way they all patted each other on the back at the end, and they pretended that they reached this great agreement when in fact there was nothing of substance, that was a precursor for all the negotiations that took place afterwards. Because they just took those discussions that were taking place in London and Washington, where they're all lying to each other and to everyone else about how much progress they were making, they just transposed that back to Baghdad. You know, the same negative way of doing things is very, very dishonest. You know, this, this continued that discussion about Baghdad amongst the same people, a lot of them. Uh, in relation to religion, so specifically on the Jafri law, we don't actually know if that's going to make any difference. So the, the minister that proposed the Jafri law was from Hezbollah Falida, so the, the Virtue Party, right? So we'll have to wait and see whether or not they get a, you know, so like a bump in the electoral result to see whether or not that's going to make any difference. It might, you know, in that case we can discuss, you know, whether or not it's relevant or not. It might not, you know, so we'll have to wait to see, we'll have to wait to see some tangible result in the election for, you know, and see whether or not the, the Virtue Party gets any additional votes. In relation to whether or not religion has played a negative or a positive role, you know, I think it's very, very difficult to say, specifically because there are very good elements. You know, I'm not a religious person, right? but there are very good elements of the religious class in Iraq, and there are very bad elements as well. Right? So you know, I think that plays to, to both sides of, uh, of Iraqi society. So you have preachers who are very, very negative, who encourage sectarianism, who are extremely violent in their rhetoric, and you have others who are you know, you know, amongst the most peaceful, you know, progressive people in the country. And if you look at this electoral campaign that just took, right now, take, took, took place right now, I don't know if you know, you, you probably are familiar with um, Ayatollah and Najafi, who made a very, very strong statement against uh, Maliki the other day. You know, and who, at the end of the statement, he said, you are all for forbidden from voting for him. You are prohibited from voting for him. And his argument was, this would bring you great pleasure if you haven't seen it yourself, it was all based on economics. Yes, yes, yes. He was talking about poverty, unemployment, and so on and so forth. Almost all, it wasn't just economics. Yeah. But a lot of his discourses are about economics. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there are good elements and bad elements. I think it's, it's very difficult for someone like me to measure. Maybe, maybe Toby has, uh, has more to say about it than I do, but I'm not sure.
we, we should wrap up very soon, but I had a question which is really about your non-party politics. If you're looking for signs of hope, are there any movements, society groups? Um, I seem to remember there were all those protests about electricity that were quite effective, and then there was there was a sort of outspring, there were protests. So what's the potential uh, for non-party politics? Okay, so um, this is something I talked about in the last chapter of uh, the book, um, is that, so we have a lot of NGOs in Iraq, but a lot of them are rotten, you know, they were basically corrupted by, uh, by all sorts of different elements, and they don't really get much done, they're just, uh, in Arabic there's a word for them, which is the uh, right? So uh, it's like, you know, family shops are just made to attract funding from various sources, whatever. But, you know, that's one element of civil society. You also have public intellectuals, the religious class, uh, some politicians, you know, even if they're part of, uh, uh, part of uh, political parties, they can still play an in, in independent role sometimes. Uh, those individuals have a big role to play, and they have played a big role. Um, you know, so in 2010, there was an improvement to the electoral law, for example. So Toby mentions the electoral law and the, the way in which it's, it's currently structured. It was worse than it currently is at some stage. Right? And the improvement came as a result of pressure from the religious class. You know? If it wasn't for their intervention, it wouldn't have happened. You know? So the United Nations, and I was present at the time, was putting a lot of pressure on the Iraqi parliament to amend the electoral law. None of that was having any impact. But the day after Ayatollah Sistani, uh, his son intervened and said it must change, that was not changed. Okay. Um, and you know, so you have a lot of people in Iraq who spend a lot of time on media, because now what Iraqis do in their spare time is they watch a lot of TV, because they can't, go out, they can't really go out much. And when they watch TV, they watch politicians speaking on TV, they watch intellectuals speaking on TV, and there are some who have a lot of influence because of the weight of their ideas. Right? Um, and you know, those people have a big responsibility, and they have a lot to contribute to so whether or not the public religious class or the intellectual class. And what I would hope is for during the next four years that we work a little bit together with those individuals to come up with a more comprehensive reform plan than what it is that we currently have. Because we don't have anything, apart from the development plans that we have, we don't really have any legal reform plans, for example. And the development plans won't lead to anything unless we have serious legal reform. Um, and, you know, so I would hope that over the next few years we'll be able to do that. I think it's possible, and I'll, I'll be I'll be trying to contribute to that effort. Um, so yeah, okay. Uh, you see now what I've understood from your book that the situation which we have reached in Iraq is due because of two main factors. First factor is the people, and you have mentioned that Madikin, Madikin policies, and the other thing is some historical events which is part of it is the constitution. So have you made some suggestions? I, I, think I didn't read your book, but have you made some suggestions how to improve the situation, what is required for the next step to bring Iraq to the, to the situation which really, uh, what, what Iraq was in the past, you see, Iraq in the past and in the 50s was really one of the major countries in, in, in the area, you know. Uh, so, really, have, have you made some, some suggestions? Uh, yeah, so the final chapter of the book is just a series of suggestions. I won't bore you with the details right now, but you know, some people have criticized it as being too optimistic or unrealistic and this type of thing, okay? Um, you know, it, for me, it's just the beginning. You know, I've, I've put that out as something like 8,000 words, right? What I hope to do is to take that, that, those 8,000 words and to develop it into something much more lengthy, but with the help of a lot of people that I know very well in Iraq. Uh, colleagues and friends of mine, and then afterwards to take that to people like yourself and others, 
uh, to see whether or not we can get enough people to sign off on it and turn it into something that would be an obligatory uh, reform program for the parliament, the next parliament, or maybe even the next one, the one after that. Right? Uh, so there are lots of ideas that are on the table, some that won't come as a surprise to you. So for example, the passing of the political parties law. Uh, but there are many other things as well that need to change. So in relation to the judiciary, you cannot have economic development without an independent judiciary, without something at least nominally independent, which is not what we have today. Um, and you know, so I put in lots of specific uh, recommendations about what needs to be done there. Um, we can discuss it later, you know, whatever, or we can discuss it now if it interests everyone, but I doubt it. There's a plan of action, pages 251, 256. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A bit of marketing for you. Great. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to add anything. No, I, I think that's the excellent way to end. I'll just say, uh, on with the marketing, buy this book. I think it's, it, 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 it's detailed, as I said, it's, it's, I think it's a, a, a a very telling and insightful critique, but with a punchline at the end that it, 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 it could be worked up into a manifesto. So I think that's and that's the trick I've always failed in play. It's not my job because I'm not a writer, but so where where next? Where do we go? What do we do? What is to be done? We'll take ideas from anyone. You don't need to be like <laughs> a good idea. A good idea is a good idea. And I found beginning, which I certainly as far as I've got, to be very humane and passionate, which I think is a great combination. Very important. So thank you all for being such a nice audience and thank you for this and thank you for coming to both Tony and Sally. Thank you.